Hey everybody, this is Eric Wright, the host of the Disco Posse podcast. Welcome aboard. This is another great episode. Uh, a newcomer to the show, uh, Ava, Ava Voom on Twitter, and Ava, A-E-V-A dot online. Definitely somebody you want to keep your eyes on and your ears on. We have a really, really interesting conversation. We dive into the really fun and challenging topics around stuff like ethics of AI and data and in and, and the industry. Uh, this is really going to something that it's good, deep thinking, great, deep conversations and a rare opportunity to have very good, mindful, thoughtful discussions on some fun and also some very challenging topics. So listen in. I hope you like it and make sure you, you reach out to Ava online. Thanks. We are on. This is so cool. I've uh, what I love recently is I've been able to talk with a lot of incredibly interesting people, especially peers in the industry who I've I've been watching and have been kind of tuned into. Uh, so this is this is it. The one and only a newcomer to the podcast. Uh, we did a quick intro. I talked about Ava. So Ava Voom online. Ava, you've got some really interesting stuff. And for anybody that doesn't Thank know you. Ava, they are somebody you really want to you know, just watch because you've got a lot of neat stuff to bring to the industry. We're going to talk about some interesting stuff today around big data, uh, ethics of AI, just because you and I sort of thought that oh, would yeah. be a neat thing to tap into. But more than anything, Ava, if you want to introduce yourself yeah. and tell us where Thanks. folks can find you online, and then uh, we'll get rolling. Thanks so much for having me on here, Eric. Uh, yeah, folks can find me on Twitter, uh, Ava Voom, or uh, my own uh, blog site, Ava.online. Um, and I guess a little bit about like what got this started is I've been diving into um, AI since I left the last startup I was running uh, engineering at. Um, tried kicking up a couple of startups around AI and realized right away that, hmm, the, the main investor we would have found were insurance companies. And I felt that was kind of ethically complicated to, to be building stuff for that industry, which wasn't what we started out at. Uh, and, and, you know, fast forward a couple of years, I've been giving some talks and jumping into tech conferences, I'm still in the cloud space, still dealing with OpenStack and Kubernetes, but these are powering a lot of folks running uh, AI and big data. And it's been kind of, kind of fascinating lately. Yeah, and that's actually what's cool is in fact, you and I have, have actually had some similar backgrounds. We've actually probably collided a few times in the community just through the OpenStack work. And that's probably what was neat. Suddenly yeah. to come back in and, and I had a friend, uh, Lauren Cooney, I had Lauren on recently and she's got a really, really interesting uh, yeah. organization she's building around helping to, to get folks uh, involved in tech and, and really help to bring voices that aren't, that have really important things to say because of sort of challenging areas especially yeah. 
you know, around, we talked about diversity, we talked around, uh, you know, ethics of, of the industry. I love what we're going to talk about because this is a, sometimes a tough conversation because what we have is that we are building, and I say we as an industry, we are building systems that are going to use incredible powers of machine learning and an AI to be able to systematically and programmatically deal with information and data and then ultimately derive new things from, the, from that data. And especially when you get into things that are driving behavioral uh, work and, and doing things around like in the community where like who are people that are likely to be good at something or, or likely to be good customers or maybe likely to not be good customers. You talked about the insurance story. Mm-hmm. When the foundation is the data we have today, it, it introduces interesting risks because where we quickly find out is it often amplifies a problem that we, we may have known was there, but it becomes patently obvious that today is probably is a dangerous baseline. I'd love to get your ideas. Like what, what do you see as some of the challenges, maybe even like a couple of, of examples you want to talk about where the data that brings us to AI is often the bigger problem than the AI itself. Cause the AI mm-hmm. takes the inputs. But if you've got bad inputs, yep. now what? Yep. Right. So like I, I gave a talk uh, a little while ago here in Seattle, um, how to see your own bias. And I brought up in there this notion that um, artificial intelligence, or really it's better called augmented intelligence, right? We use computers to augment our own intelligence. Uh, they're not independently smart. But the math behind it today, it's all deep math underneath the hood. And it's a bias amplification system. At its core, that is all it does. Right? You take a bunch of data and apply math to it. The math is accelerated by big machines, GPUs, sometimes even you know, clouds. Lots of money goes into executing that math. But all it's doing is detecting the patterns in the data we gave it and learning how to replicate that decision-making, that bias um, at scale. Once the model's been trained, it can be deployed anywhere in the world, run on a mobile phone or a smart doorbell, and it's replicating that bias that came in from the team of people that curated that initial data set. So if they curate a data set that, um, let's say, only looks at a certain behavior pattern in a certain demographic of people or only people of a certain uh, race, their, their faces for facial recognition or like whatever system they're looking at, if there is a bias inherent in that system today, and the, the data scientists who are building the model or building the data set to train the model aren't cognizant of or compensating for or aware of that bias, it's going to get replicated. And folks are trying to build systems um, right now to, to surface those biases and create a feedback loop within the, the process of training these machine learning models. The thinking is if we can surface up the bias, even if we didn't know it was there in the data set to begin with, we can iterate as developer teams or data science teams, we can iterate and reduce it over time. Now, this is the challenge, I think, where we, again, like I said, we is like the, the royal we of, of the industry. We, we have trouble sort of having these discussions around bias, mostly because 
nobody wants to personally be on the wrong side of like, they're like, hey, wait a second. Like, no, no, no. I get that. I get that you personally may not have it. Like, and I would say, again, like I talk to people all the time, <laughs> myself, I'm included. Like I talked to, with, with Lauren about this and said, I'm trying to do as much as I can to help to you know, furnish opportunities where folks that are underrepresented have access to tools and, and people in the industry that they may not have had because they didn't have the resources. So can I, through what I've been able to gather in my life, you know, whether it's you know, money, hours, mm -hmm. Uh, access to tools, et cetera, et cetera, and just connecting people. Can I do something that's that's really good? And then the dangerous thing is like, quite often I'm speaking with people who I want to do this with, and they say like, hey, they're a little concerned about about it being me because I effectively look like <laughs> sure. the problem. So hmm. then even more so is then we, like you said, take that to a larger group. You know, mm -hmm. we, we talked about, you know, when you're doing things like facial recognition, when you're doing things around uh, anything around neurolinguistics, obviously, oh, yeah. what do we do? We love the fact that we believe the world speaks English, yes. <laughs> that the oh, world yeah. is predominantly Christian. That the, so we, in, as North Americans, have a whole host of exciting biases that we just we don't know they're biased because that's all we've ever known. And it's tough to it's tough to unpack that with somebody and they're like they get yeah, defensive yeah. and i like how do you how do we deal with that it's a it's a really really tough interesting sure. problem i think we've got so so i define perception bias and there's there's now a catalog of hundreds of different types of biases but but specifically here we're dealing with perception bias and the the sentiment that i'm not biased what i've perceived is correct um, I define perception bias as any a preference or an inclination that affects the experience of perceiving something. And I distinguish the, the, between the experience of perceiving it and how we, and like the physical act of perceiving it. So the light hitting my retina of an image or something is independent from, how, from what I perceive and all the emotions that may come up with, let's say I don't like that uh, type of food. Um, I'm going to have an emotional reaction just to seeing it on the table. It might be a really small reaction. There's a little bit of a bias there. And a bias, it just comes from my own past experience. Maybe I once, you know, ate too much of it and don't like it because I, you know, that one bad experience. We all have those little biases here and there. And so I use that as a way to talk about or teach people that bias isn't bad. It's just the result of your experiences. Your experiences are unique. They make you you. That's valuable. Your perspective is valuable but everyone else's perspectives are valuable too, and their perspectives are different. And the challenge is often when people spend a lot of time or you know, their whole life living in one culture, they, their sense of how different a perspective can be from their own is not as broad as this great planet Earth we're all living on. I spent a lot of time growing up split across multiple cultures. So, I, so a, a term for this, like a third culture kid, I lived in India. Uh, I had parents who were Dutch. Um, lives in the U.S. a little bit. Uh, kind of grew up around five different languages. And by the time I was in my 30s, I've lived in several different countries. Uh, only only the U.S. speaks English. Um, and so I'd say my perspective of how different 
term, my experience of how different a perspective can be is broader than some people. And that definitely informs my sense of ethics. I want to include everybody in it. Yeah, it, here's another one that <clears throat> I'm, I've, I can't remember, I'm 40 something or other old years old. I've, I've been around for a while. <laughs> I, mm -hmm. I actually care less about the number. That's why I, can't, I literally can't remember half the time. <laughs> But in those number of years, my way that I deal with situations has altered because I have many lived experiences. And through those lived experiences, I've adjusted how I, how I respond to certain stimuli, respond to certain yeah. situations. And so that's the other thing that's interesting is that I, whenever we get into these sort of challenges of ethics discussions, folks that have been around and like gone out of the way to be in tune with what's going on. You've have lived experiences that have opened you up to a very different mm -hmm. viewpoint. And then you can take that viewpoint and apply it to something. Yep. Yep. Then you're suddenly bringing a brand new engineer, 21 years old, graduated early from school, super smart, mm -hmm. went to Stanford, mm -hmm. came out, ready to, to take on the world full of, of piss and vinegar, as they say, right? Like just <laughs> excited to start doing stuff. And without the lived experiences, sometimes yeah. it's, that's why, that's why we do things like pairing people with, with mentors and, and doing yeah. other things. It's, it's not just about teaching. It's about opening up lived experiences to help people deal with situations that may, may, may yeah. not have been exposed to. So do you, how how do you find that that plays out and and so imagine 19 year old ava versus today mm -hmm. ava what mm -hmm. did would you even this this conversation would you feel differently about what we're discussing now versus the 19 year old version you would have been like oh i i don't necessarily believe that this is true or not true because i haven't lived it yet i definitely have changed a lot since i was 19 and i have much broader uh, perspective and better words to articulate a lot of this. Um, I was sort of an outlier, even from your, your analogy of a 21-year-old who just graduated from Stanford, I was actually out of university at 17 um, and already in the job, you know, building uh, distributed networks when I was 18. With a lot of this in mind, I, I'd already lived in a couple of different countries, studied ethics in college, studied a couple languages in college. But like even with that, my perspective has changed to become so much broader since then. When I think about your approach to it, and that's why I love even in, in the conversation we're having, I, I very much appreciate a very, like you're very measured about how, you, and you talked about like the importance of the words you use and, and yeah. using this very measured approach. And it's, it's interesting because I've spoken with a lot of, of folks mm -hmm. in, and I, I love, because you can really get into intellectual discussions, especially around oh. tough topics, because you know you're going to take a very measured approach, even if it, we get a little riled up because of personal experience sometimes. Sure, sure. You have the ability to kind of tamp it down and, and think almost like scientifically. And what's weird is I've, I've even had people say like, it's very unemotional the way that you approach something. I'm like, mm. well, no, no, it's not unemotional, but I have to detach from it to have the intellectual discussion. I have to, in order to, to do be able that. to serve it. Yeah. It's like I, um, I, I like the, the storytelling in the Sherlock series, like a mind palace. To, to analyze a lot of this, 
uh, or, or to, to talk about it, I start by conceptualizing it and seeing myself and others and how we relate to each other, what differences uh, of background or perspective I might know about myself or somebody else, and how can I meet them on ground that is comfortable or that is common to find a common language. When my, I think because I've lived in so many places, that's a really big asset in being able to communicate this kind of, uh, like you mentioned, often difficult content to people, um, even you know, whether that is a, a junior developer or a young queer developer who's struggling to fit into the tech world or an executive at uh, some big tech company, and to find a, a language that they speak to convey the same idea and try to you know, help introduce the idea that we do need to think about ethics and AI, not just profit and not just faster iteration, but including in the cycle of iteration, diverse perspectives or someone who's lived in a lot of places and, and can bring in that experience to the younger developer team. If I look at the, uh, I, I, the it's funny when you brought up insurance as an example, I, mm. I, I worked in, in insurance companies and worked in the financial industry for, for many years as a systems architect and like really came up as desktop support and, and really saw the, how the business worked and how they approached a lot of stuff. And that really was interesting to see because I like the actuarials, you know, literally they oh, would yeah. like have actuarial oh, tables yeah. that were physical books mm -hmm. at one point and then mm -hmm. they moved into data format. And it, it was basically deriving the future out of as much historical data as you could and then using that to model. And like in the simplest way, it would be looking through saying, you're 48, you smoked for 22 years, you drive fast. All right, this is your, your monthly insurance rate. Mm -hmm. And probability, yeah. Right, and, and, and it's, but now that we've got data this incredible pool of data that may not even be just the data that was their own customer data, but even mm -hmm. beyond because it's shared data. And I thought Microsoft uh, at, in, at Ignite 2018, mm -hmm. i to remember what year it is, yeah, last, the last year's <laughs> Microsoft Ignite, they talked about this idea of using shared mm -hmm. data with Adobe. Mm -hmm. um, good, and I apologize, I, I can't remember the name of the project that they wrapped around it, but it was this idea of like, it, bringing everyone's data together to have the ability to draw from it to give a broader yeah. ability to see beyond just the customer set that you've got. So one of the one of the big challenges with applying machine learning to a very confidential data set like healthcare is oftentimes the tools reside in one company and the data in another. And we have you know laws around how the data gets shared. Um, and you know, valid concerns about what happens even if the law, if the data is shared legally, it still increases the risk of an exposure or a breach or loss of that data. So is there a way to do, it's called confidential computing, and this is an emerging part of the tech industry right now. Um, actually, I think Linux Foundation is spinning up some things around confidential computing at this very moment to be able to, let's say, have Adobe or um, an insurance company or a hospital take their data and um, have a guarantee from the, the compute engine, from the hardware even potentially, to evaluate training or execution of machine learning models or other, other sorts of computation on that data without sharing it with anybody else. Wouldn't that be kind of cool? That is. And, and it's, it's interesting because, of course, if we look at 
you know, a captive audience of data and customer set, it's, it, it, we, I always joke when I hear polls and people say like, oh, you know, X news company uh, had, did a poll and they found that, you know, 77% agree that dentistry is a terrible industry. I'm like, <laughs> well, whatever the, the thing is, I'm like, well, you went to the basement of your building, effectively, you went to, <laughs> but you went to your audience and you asked sure. 10 of them standing outside the window, hey, what do you think about dentistry? Oh, yeah. it sucks. So you're, but they use that then sometimes to feed opinion oh, yeah. and, How, and they call it data backed. I'm like, this is bias, not data backed. <laughs> bias in your data set. Like if you, you know, good science includes understanding the data set that it was built on and actually sharing what kind of you know, heuristics you have about that, what your confidence is that your data set, your sample set isn't biased or is biased to some degrees. There was a, um, a startup I was doing a little bit of work with last year uh, in the space of uh, anonymizing data sets. If you can use machine learning to anonymize a data set, and then you can share, well, like share access to it for the benefit of other people building new models with a, a mathematical guarantee that there's no de-anonymizing or no personal data in there, but a similar guarantee that all the heuristics are preserved we could arrive at things like um, imagine imagine if the uh, if, if Uber or Lyft could share all of their routing data, or if a healthcare company could share all of their um, success rate data for different treatments, without violating anybody's uh, privacy. What if that could actually be done? What other technology could be built from that data set? And I think it's it's a, it's a really interesting idea and also really scary if it gets, if, if they get it wrong and the wrong data gets out. Right. And, you know, as, as we record this, it was just recently announced that there was a large issue with a, a, a lab a company in Canada that had been breached and mm -hmm. some incredible amounts of, well, you know, data in its, whether it's it's what the data could be used for that's that's frightening and the fact that it was a privacy issue in general is is already concerning but like you said will will uber and lyft and you know and dd and whatever companies would they volunteer their data mm -hmm. having not without the responsibility and ability to affect the security the dn anonymization etc cetera, et cetera. Like, uh, they could also there's a new york times article this morning on similar stuff like it's already out there and not anonymized and they, they, that's so that's <laughs> the funny part we we are we are backing into the ethical issue of things that are actually widely happening yeah which is even a little weirder because how do we we're, we're writing we're we are now having to, to write you know, regulations and, and write mm -hmm. laws and, and write, you know, ethical, you know, how do we, how do we approach this as, as a culture, as a community, when, you know, it's already out in the wild uh, and it may have been done wrong. It may have been done right, but either way, we need to sort of like hold the, hold the reins back a bit and say, okay, mm -hmm. let's erase, etch a sketch, like shake out, shake out history. <laughs> if we were to start today and we had this broad oh set of data available, how would I, how would I write rules and regulations around how we use it, how it's shared, how it, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's so here's, here's an example of, of how my perspective has changed in the past 20 years. Um, like you and I both have done a lot of work in open source 
pretty sure we intersected somewhere around OpenStack. Um, that wasn't my first foray into open source. I got into that in early MySQL days. And along the way, I've seen open source that I wrote, um, specifically OpenStack Ironic, like you know, big hardware automation, hardware security for clouds, get used by militaries. And we've, we've seen talks at conferences from you know, MySQL back in the day to OpenStack. We had NSA giving a keynote to KubeCon just a, a month ago. We had another, another branch of the US military giving a talk there on Kubernetes. So if we have all these ethical concerns about how technology is used or how the data is used once it's out there and open source, now, there's no use restriction on open source and by definition there can't be. And my, my sense on this 10 years ago was yes, open source is absolutely the right way to go. And I'm no longer as certain of that. Which is something I'm grappling with. I don't, I don't have an answer there, but I think it's... Uh, I, I'm with you on this, on the challenge that we face as an industry yeah. is that yeah, ethical use and the, well, I mean, obviously this came up recently with the ethical use license and a few things. Mm -hmm. that, and even just a single company, you know, even you know, set aside the, what we just, the examples that are very clearly just gave, which are really tough topics, right? Yeah. Another big one, of course, is stuff like 23andMe. I'm like, yeah, oh, this is totally. phenomenal, right? People have like 23 me, like, this is great. I can, you know, or, or it's, it's a company. And, yeah. And they can be bought by somebody else who doesn't, you know, and that, someone else has the data. Right. And, and, and that, that is one of the more challenging problems of like, even if you trust the company you trust today, you are going to get your semi-annual uh, acknowledgement of the change of, of terms of use. And Please you may or may not have grandfathered in your data into their new terms of use. Even if you say, I disagree, you originally signed in that you will leave your data behind when you exit the platform. Yeah. And so at some point you, you now have no way to sort of give me my stuff back. Uh, and, and we see it with, with privacy stuff. And mostly people are like, look, your salespeople are particularly good at using the phone. Can you please get them off my back? All right, we'll pull you, we'll pull you out of Salesforce. So get them off my email list too. Okay, cool. Like that's, you sort of take that the next level, which is the right to be forgotten, which brought up in the EU. And, and as a Canadian, I, I had this weird thing called CASEL, Canadian anti-spam legislation. Mm -hmm. See so the, the right to undo yourself from a lot of things. And they have to, they're regulated to delete you and and this, so there's certain tougher regulations that are there but now even more so your medical data and this is the one i struggle with the most because i think okay great i love the idea that i can find out you know my ancestry i can find out things that are potentially i'm at risk for but now i think two things one what what will i do as a result of knowing more than i did prior to this test this exposure of, of my information right. And even more so, what else in my personal ecosystem, whether it's my insurance company, my government, my whatever, mm -hmm. what will mm -hmm. they do having now potentially access to it? So instead of just actuarial tables that say, I told them I smoked, I told them I drank, right. I told them I bike really fast, you know, I, I can lay down all these things and they say, okay, probabilistic, your, your, this is your, your, your potential death age, here's your insurance as a result. Well, now they're going to say, 
you have markers for, you know, a 9% chance that you could have multiple sclerosis because yeah. somebody else in the family has it. Like mm-hmm. now it could now affect my insurance. And there was no way to know that. That was part of the, the mm-hmm. bet that they laid, right? They, they lay a bet on probability and that probability is what they do to profit from giving you insurance with the hopes that they won't have to pay it. It's, it's a for-profit industry. So now what happens when my data is out there that may or may not be right because we haven't actually played out a generation of exposure <laughs> to that data. So sorry, I've gone way, way too long, but that, right, really that's just think of that, that thing. What are your thoughts on especially sort of exp- th- that DNA data living out there somewhere and, and, and like risk, what do we do? So with all of the types of data that we are creating now as humans, whether it's you know, your location and movement data through a phone or your smartwatch um, or your voice records on digital phone calls um, like the one we're having, uh, all of this data can be used and we have trained a generation of people, um, maybe even two, to sign away their rights to their own data in exchange for a service. I would love to see a World Wide Web where humans retain the right to their own data. They retain the right to self-determination going a step beyond the intent of the GDPR, which is the right to be forgotten, to actually legally, that's my data, it is my privacy. Like a company has no right to come into my house and take something. I don't think a company should have a right to use my data in some other way. And today, the only reason they do is we've we taught everybody, yes, just check the little box that says you signed the EULA and now you can use the service. And everyone wants to get on Instagram to look at the pictures or whatever, see their friends. We don't, we as an industry, and I take some small part of the blame for this having helped to build an ad company back in early 2000s, have trained people um, to give away that data and not understand the, the types of implications. And I think we're all seeing the ramifications of that now laid out on the, on the whole globe. Um, there's work being done to address this. Uh, projects like uh, Solid from Sir Tim Berners-Lee uh, to, to create a, uh, it's not, I don't think this one's blockchain based, but it's some sort of a digital, con- digital container with a computational contract around the data in it so that all of my social media activity, pictures, everything that I do could be contained in some sort of a contract that I can then say, great, Instagram, you have access to these things for one day and I'll set up an auto renewal on that. And when I'm tired of Instagram, I just, uncheck that box and Instagram no longer has those pictures. That is one sort of application. Another example of this that I love to use is like a Star Trek communicator. The, the idea of having a personal translator, when I get off a plane in some country where I don't speak any languages, it's awesome, I'd love that. I don't wanna give away my voice model and all of my voice data and my location data to some other company, let alone to every cloud provider in, in some country I might happen to be in. So what I imagine is, what if the last layer training of that model 
lived on my device. It's a little low power device with battery in it. I get off a plane, it tethers to my phone, it finds a local cloud provider, negotiates a you know, mutual contract with my home cloud somewhere in, in Washington, copies over my VM, which then runs securely in that cloud. My last layer data gets uploaded. It now acts as the compute engine to power the translation. And at the end of this, the updates, whatever it learned, gets saved back to my little communicator that I'm carrying around, and the data is gone from the cloud. I've paid the cloud for a service of running the compute, but they don't have my data. I'd love to see that. And I think it's closer than it could have been in the past. We look at obviously what edge computing and, and yep. the potential that using ARM processing and, and <laughs> there's definitely miniature devices and small form factor devices will have more computational capabilities as we as we get there i do love the idea that that that's kind of a a place we need to be and it's it's very interesting we're we're going to navigate a lot of time like you said we've effectively raised a generation that it firmly believes that you you click the terms of use and we know that legally we are bound to check when was it check the checkbox whether you read it or not yeah. you are bound and then at one point there was a reversal and it said Look, obviously, there's there's not there's no way that somebody could actually could do that, and but it's it is still it's implied consent upon checking the checkbox that you do in fact, and now it's you you're the responsibility and the onus lies on the consumer to ultimately sue the provider or or you know to litigate in, against the provider for look there's no way i could have read the 228 pages there's actually a good documentary called i think it's Ter some conditions may or terms and conditions may apply and talks mm -hmm. about some of the the, the yeah. problems of it and like the length of of the eula uh it, and actually somebody that's yes. on there well lawrence lessig uh who's mm -hmm. a, a, a strong voice around ethics and privacy and, and the challenges mm -hmm. we've faced uh, i think is, is prominent in that documentary and, and a great person to to read as well uh, he's an interesting uh, person to listen it's, to. It's not just the length of those that I'm pointing at, but that is its own issue. But there's no, like an individual user, consumer has no negotiating power. It's either you accept whatever they've, they've given you as the terms or you don't use the products. And unless enough people collectively say, we won't use your product, the companies won't change. The, the, the industry practice won't change. So I've been, um, we gave a talk at a local Linux conference here in Seattle on how to get off of Google and Facebook and all those, but still have all of the functions that they provide to society, to our communities. There's a, a big movement to decentralize or re-decentralize the internet with self-hosted solutions for all of that. And what's neat is the decentralization is not just decentralization of data, it's decentralization of power. And I yeah. think that's where people kind of get lost on the concept of like, that's what we're really trying to do. We're not trying to, you know, distribution of that is distribution of the power and control. Mm -hmm. And, and that's now the fun part is who, who's, who's going to be willing, you know, when given a crowd of a decent size, we also know, you know, you and I, you know, other folks that are sort of deeply tuned to the, the, the direct effect of it. 
we have a very distinct way that we approach these discussions and the, and the way we would deal with products. I still use a lot of products. I use, you know, Google for Gmail and, and such like that. Willingly, willingly knowing exactly what's going on yeah. in order to give me that. But there are many folks out there who do not have either the knowledge, the, you know, for no fault of their own. It's just like they, like I said, they, they were raised in a generation where you just like, look, go to the app store, download it. It's free. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, how do we, when we now have to try and get to this next, next inflection point where we say, okay, what if we all got out of Google? All is such a tough term because the, mm -hmm. I don't know the numbers, you know, let's just ballpark that out of 7 billion people, let's just say 50% of them are using a Google product in one way or another. So three and a half billion people, yeah. even if we get one and a half billion people <laughs> to stop doing it, which is a lot of people, that's still only 50% of that population that's actually in the platform. So yeah, yeah it's, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm saying I'm using this like inside, inside my own head. That's why I, I always have these tough discussions of internally of like, yeah. you know, can we can we influence a change that would then cause the the power brokers to then say, <laughs> oh, okay, we get it. The shit, the tide is shifting. We're going to get on board. A degree of uh, legal change is necessary for that. Uh, a degree of technological change is necessary for that. I think we are observing the buildup of the social um, momentum needed for that change right now. Uh, case in point, uh, Jack on Twitter just uh, what a week ago was asking about decentral, decentralized social media, Twitter-like platforms and promising to commit, you know, some number of developers to building one and folks are like, hey dude, um, there's already several out there. It's called the ActivityPub protocol. Get on yes, right. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, in case you haven't checked, we figured <laughs> this out already for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's kind of awkward using Jack as a, as a positive example there, but um, sort of positive. Ooh, and this, this is a neat one. I, so I listened to, it was the first appearance of Jack uh, on, the, on the Joe Rogan podcast. Mm. Joe Rogan, I'm, I, I love his podcasting style because, you know, sort of people think of like, oh, he's just sort of this big, dumb ape comedy comedian. But I, but he's actually mm -hmm. asks very interesting questions. He's very good at yeah. sort of drawing out information. And let's, let's forget about content and buy it. Like just, I, he is very good at, at drawing out interesting information based on like, you know, even whether he agrees or disagrees with it, I, I found that he's good at it. So when he talked to Jack Dorsey in the first one, mm -hmm. I was like, Ooh, it's very neat. And I heard, like you said, I don't want to look and say, hey, Jack, he's making great decisions. He's got good ethics in mind. I'm like, I don't think that, <laughs> no. I don't think that he has, I don't think that he is inborn evil in what he, I think unfortunately the platform became something that is now unchangeable and mm. he has to, you know, you know, he is sort of following in line with keeping the platform alive uh, and growing as well as, but like you could hear it in the way that he discussed it. He says, look, this wasn't the intent of what we built. In fact, it's one right. of the issues that we have right. is that it became something that we did not intend it to become. And so we had to often, learn. 
so often the technology we build and put out there, uh, speaking for myself as well, right, it becomes something else. The, the, the solutions to today become tomorrow's problem. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, and it's interesting, too, is I, I've been a longtime student of, of B.J. Fogg and the mm. idea of persuasive computing mm. uh, and using persuasion. And, and, and he calls, talks about captology. Uh, very interesting read. But what was interesting is people then use that ultimately to create what we're in today, which is games that can enthrall a four-year-old or a six-year-old and, and keep them playing and accidentally clicking the buy button and, and spending. Like, so we've learned how to, how to use behavioral psychology for all of the, like keeping people involved, keeping them in when you go to leave Facebook, that it has a, hey, you, these friends are going to miss you. Don't go. There's all of these behavioral psychologies sort of tips and traps that we've been able to set and bj fogg had founded ways in which we could discover those but then mm. sadly people did naughty things with them and so he himself as well as many of his sort of like stronger students uh, tristan harris is a great example uh who's come and said like whoa, whoa okay we we get that we know this like we know the science behind it now we know the behavioral psychology that's wrapped around this but we gotta we gotta use it for good and here's yeah. ways that we can recognize where the ethics, ethical boundaries being crossed in the wrong direction. And what can we do to enable and educate people that are using these products that, hey, I know it's free and here's why. And are you really okay with what you're about to click? So when we, when we release open source, we are giving up the control over how other people use that technology and i've definitely like i have shifted from I, everything i do should be open source to what could people do harm how could people do harm with this open source an example uh, if i can get um back into a, a more sensitive topic um, uh, facial recognition image uh, recognition and then um, generative adversarial networks and you can actually render an image the missing part of someone's face or someone's body uh, there was a thing a little while ago uh, deep fakes on the internet someone created deep porn like the, the, it's terrible use of technology but the technology is out there and there's nothing we can do to take back tensorflow or terrace as libraries right. that can do this Yeah, it, it's, it is a, and this is it, right? And he would talk about the, that, like the industry of, of, of pornography. It was funny, they talked about this, like within a, a matter of days after the first camera being invented, sure. people were probably, were taking nude pictures of themselves. They're, they're humans. Right. <laughs> that, ah, so here's the fun part. All right. AI. Why do I, why do people say like, why is AI a tough thing? The reason why AI is a problem is because it's based on human intelligence and human data. If you take something that's flawed and you amplify the flaw, yep. you will get exactly what you want, what you didn't want, which is an, an acute awareness of what was fundamentally wrong with the input. Yep. It's a mirror for society and humans, except it's, it's become a mirror for all of humanity the best and the worst parts like the startup that i was working on last year we wanted to predict wildfires before they happen to help 
you know, advise park policy and, and BLM policy about preventing forest fires. And chatting with VCs, we realized the money was from insurance companies to regulate um, prices of people's fire insurance policies. I'm like, oh my gosh, we're not going to build this now. Someone else can build it. And the more you know, we investigated, we realized in some insurance companies are already working on this, of course. Um, and yeah, did we actually bring them? Did we, by enhancing the technology, especially when it's open sourced, yeah. we've effectively, we've brought them closer to their goal, which yeah. was not ours. And, yeah, and we, we accelerate everybody, right? When we release a, a tool, like it's a new screwdriver, it's a new paradigm, it's, it empowers everybody, but it does, it empowers everybody to use that tool to do things that we might not like. And also what's interesting is there's a, there's a challenge of when it shows us something that, what, that we don't understand or agree with, how do we as creators of, of technologies and whatever, how do we deal with that? And even as society, we look at, if it gives us this information, we like to say, oh, the machine's broken or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, an interesting one <clears throat> is around, uh, there's been specific studies done around uh, using uh, using technology and machine learning in order to do things like uh, retinal recognition and oh, being yeah. able to map to things like uh, personality traits and whatever. Most importantly is, is uh, gender, uh, mm -hmm. sex, mm -hmm. and, and other physical factors like potential for, for heart failure. And, and what they found was through the use of, of AI and these systems that they could, in an 80 plus percent situation, successfully identify the birth sex of the person who they have the retinal image of. They have nothing else other than the retina. None of the physicians who ran the study know how it works because we don't know how to do it as humans, but the machine has figured it out because we gave it data and it basically, so now the fun part is whether good, bad, right, wrong, whatever, we now have to say like, Will I then trust this to now then derive future decisions, other things based on now the output where even, you know, said so take, take, take our own biases and whatever out of it, like, oh goodness, like would a, would a doctor say, hey, look, the machine says you're, you're, you're going to have a heart attack in an hour or so, you know, there's no other indication. Your retina says you're, you're, you're heading to a problem. <laughs> do we then now begin to make medical decisions? Like you said, insurance is like, yeah, oh boy, this is a, it's a Pandora's box of, yeah. of, of challenges, yeah. right? We, we already are and have been at each, each time new mechanisms of data um, collection or, or understanding get surfaced, the industry begins to respond to them. Um, and yet we come back to what it is to be a human and, and our own biases around what is gender and what is race and what is healthy and what is differently abled. Uh, and technology can't solve those problems for us. The, the most it can do is continue to surface them and connect us as people to become more aware that, sure, if only 0.01% of the population has this condition, that's still millions of people. 
I think you've also highlighted something I like to bring out to people. Said so just the the sheer statistics when you expand the the sample set. Yeah. So North America, just say even the United States, if if one percent of the population of the United States is you know <clears throat> whatever you know suffers from a thing or 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 has a particular or, trait or whatever some something that's an an identifier for one percent of the population is three point three million people. Yeah. Yeah. So even if we were to say that we had a positive effect on 99% of the population, mm -hmm. when we develop things, that, and you see this being used in discussions around setting up regulations to say, whoa, whoa, hang on a second. I get your 99%. So you're saying that 3.3 million people are meaningless to you. Yeah. Oh, wow. And now you suddenly have like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then what happens is all of the people who support those 3.3 million um, all of those allies realize, wait a minute, this isn't actually good because the next time they modify this, whatever it is, it'll, you know, they'll, they'll hold the bar of 99%, but a different 1% will fall off of the, the um, data analysis and not fit the model. And they'll just be discarded because it's mostly accurate. And each time that, that um, uh, sort of window rotates, a different 1% gets affected and the picture that forms of who's actually protected by this isn't all that inclusive. And the, the challenge we always face is that we, we love all or nothing cases, which it just is not, not possible. It's uh, got to build systems that can be truly inclusive of everybody and different experiences and different perspectives. And, yeah, 99% isn't good enough. No, and, 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 and the trick is, well, you know, in the search for 100, do we shed what, what's being good of the 99? That there's, it, it becomes a very situational thing, uh, you know, if it's dealing with, you know, only goodness, right? Like, it's, it's funny, I talked to even like social media. I, one of my favorite social media platforms is Strava. It's not really a social media platform, but it, it is in a way, whatever you want to define. It's not necessarily an interactive thing, but it's very positive interactions and, and it's generally based around, no one says like, oh yeah, nice, nice run kid. You, you want to maybe pick it up next time? Like, <laughs> no, no, it's you generally like, hey, you know, kudos, thumbs up, whatever the things are. And, and people, we use it as a continuous sort of positive feedback loop to help keep us healthy, keep us whatever. And I, I get accused of when someone says like, hey, oh, you're one of those like health like fitness people, like, oh, you mean people that don't want to die in their 40s? Yeah, yeah, one of those people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my dad had a near fatal heart attack at 41. I'm on borrowed time right now. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, I, yeah, I'm one of those fitness people, whatever you want to call it. But it's, if I look at, you know, the positive that comes, but then if I were to take that data and say that based on X, you know, you know, is it, is it problematic for, you know, will people come onto the platform and then they'll be, negatively affected by it there's it is a very interesting continuous challenge we have to face i'm gonna ask you quickly ava because i know we're coming up to the time we meant to, to close yeah. up have you got a few yeah. extra minutes to keep going a couple minutes yeah oh okay perfect the what can we do <laughs> this is the worst question asked with a couple minutes ago what can we do <laughs> what can we do personally to mm. sort of be ready and be aware of the impact of these things it had nothing else. We'll go. I want, we're going to come back on again because I really want to expand this conversation and talk yeah. a lot more. Um, 
and all, anybody could, should go watch your talks. You, you've got a lot of them that are published and, and, and your writing is phenomenal. So I would encourage, I'll, I'll include in the show notes, make sure we point people to where you're, where you're at. But yeah. like what, what, what's in the very short time of the, the near future for a lot of people, what can they do to, to help to like, be ready? Look at their own bias. Like look at, the, look at their own experience and perspective and simultaneously value and appreciate it and recognize that it's only one. There are so many other perspectives that are also valuable. And spend some time learning from those, whether that's in your local community or go volunteer at a soup kitchen or speak up about the rights of different oppressed groups in your city or on Twitter or wherever. Like, stand up for each other and support each other because this surveillance capitalism is going to continue dividing us. That's what happens with this much data and this much bias. And when we look in the mirror and we see that, cast in negative sensational light, what we need to do is just the opposite of that, connect with other humans and support them. And when technology changes, which it's going to just, like I don't have any advice there because it's going to change in both directions. I think it's, it's great advice. Uh, uh, well, like I said, we'll explore it a lot more because there's very, some very specific situations I think you and I can really delve further into that are, uh, that would be helpful more. And of course, we t there's so much more that you're doing that I'm, I'm very interested in and folks that listen will be. Uh, we're going to wrap up for now. I, I definitely want to welcome folks to find you. So Ava, where can, where can they find yeah. you online and, and, and communicate with you if they want to? Yeah. Thanks again for so much for having me on here, Eric. It's been a blast. I look forward to next time. Uh, and folks can find me at um, Ava, A-E-V-A dot online uh, for my blog and some writings and links to sometimes where I'm going. Um, or on Twitter, Ava Voom. Um, and, you know, if you want to hear me come talk in person, some of my content doesn't get recorded, just uh, tag me on Twitter and we'll, we'll talk. I love going around giving, giving talks about this stuff. That's the uh, the magic of of availability, uh, and and I love that we we've had we've touched a lot of good topics. Uh, I and I said thank you. I appreciate taking the time today for folks again. Like I said, definitely go uh, go follow Ava and watch what they're doing. This is very very cool, uh, and I look forward to a chance to talk in the future. We'll get caught up as we head into the next decade. I can say like, hey, oh we've me we've messed this twenty. Ah. I know. We messed this decade up. Let's try and let's try and recover in the next one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, definitely working on that. <laughs> Excellent, Ava. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, looking forward to more. Talk to you soon. Bye. Hey everybody, it's time again. Grab a cup of joe and get your friends.